Well, as you, many of you know, we are continuing our series called Stuff, Developing a Theology of Money and Possessions. Throughout this series, we're examining our relationship with money. We're thinking about what we think and how we feel about our possessions, our income, and our assets. When you think about your stuff, how do you feel? Confident, content, peaceful, grateful? Or would you say that you feel perhaps guilty, angry, envious, or ashamed? As we study what the Bible says about money, we're finding that what we feel and think says a lot about the people that we are becoming. So let's invite God to continue to guide us as we examine the scriptures and examine our souls. This morning, we get to hear from our friend Wayne Crace, and he is no stranger to our community. Uh, Wayne is, has, he comes to us with decades of experience in the pastoral, in pastoral world of ministry as well as in academics. He served for a number of years as the president of Vanguard University. He has been such a blessing to our community this weekend. I can't wait for you to hear from him what God has put on his heart. Please prepare yourselves because the Lord has a message for you this morning. Let's pray for our friend Wayne and let's pray for ourselves. Lord, thank you so much that we can come together as a community this morning. Lord, thank you that we can hear from you, from, from your word. And God, I pray that you would prepare us to receive your instruction and, Lord, to be open to you in every way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Kelly. What a privilege to be with you again. Stuff. What's wrong with it? There's only one thing wrong is what Jesus said. But what was it? The worst thing that can happen to us is not just being told there's something wrong, but it's not being told what it is. It's like a doctor says, well, I, you got a problem, but we'll have to do some tests. It's uh, kind of like that experience of driving down the highway and uh, oh it's just been a beautiful day there's not a cloud in the sky you've got the stereo tuned up real high you're tapping the rhythm on the steering wheel and you're humming along with it and all of a sudden there's this beep and your dashboard lights up and says check engine duh what am I supposed to do pull off to the side of the road and lift the hood and see if it's still there I hear it. It's not making any funny noises. I don't see a trail of smoke behind me. I don't see a trail of liquid behind me. What's wrong? My wife and I were uh, recently driving through uh, uh, Kansas in our motorhome. And uh, I was going about 70, maybe 72 miles an hour. And it was a beautiful day. We're having a nice conversation. The stereo's cranked up, and we're just going along. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this blast of a crosswind, and it hits us right on the right side, pushes that motorhome about two feet over and skids back. And all of a sudden, ding, 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 the lights are on. The cruise control has been disarmed. I got all kinds of messages on the dashboard. It says, check the engine, cruise control disarmed, skids uh, control off. 
check the tires, go immediately to a service center. I'm out nowhere. I said to my wife, I said, honey, get the manual out. See how we reset this thing. And uh, she's reading along, and uh, she said, well, it doesn't say much about it. I said, I think I read somewhere that if you shut it off and turn it on three times, it'll, it'll reset itself. So we pull off to the side, and I'm turning it on. I start it up. I turn it off. I turn it on. I start it up. I turn it off. I turn it on. Start it up. Start down the road. All the signals are still there. And then I said to Barb, I said, you know, I think when you turn it off, you're supposed to take the key all the way out of the ignition. (laughs) So there I am, feeling like a dodo bird. Turn it off, pull the key out, stick it in, turn it on, start it off, turn it off. It worked. I was very glad because I didn't want to drive the next 500 miles with my foot on the accelerator. Well, this is somewhat of what was going on in the life of a young man whose story is recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. He is sailing along, cruising through life at the absolute pinnacle. We would say he had it all together. The story is recorded by all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you merge the facts from those three, we find out that he's young. He is very wealthy, and he is a ruler. When you're young, you're rich, and you're powerful, what could possibly be wrong? Let's pick the story up in Mark 10, verse 17. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. to be crucified. There's been over three years of ministry, healing the sick, teaching, opening the eyes of the blind, and yes, even raising the dead. And he's just finished blessing a crowd of children. He's out in the marketplace, on the street. He's not in a synagogue. Unlike what Nicodemus did when he went to see Jesus under cover of night alone, This young man, same situation as Nicodemus, rich and powerful, is so desperate. He's frantic. He's panicking. Let's pick his story up. As he was setting out on his journey, Jesus is leaving the crowd of children. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, don't defraud anyone. Honor your father and mother. The young man said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. I'm a pretty good guy. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have. What? 
and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened, I imagine so. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at what he said. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with him. This is one of those very, very pregnant passages in Scripture. You read it and it wants to give birth to all kinds of questions. And you start asking yourself, what in the world is going on here? I want to focus on two issues, two questions. The first is, what is going on in this young man that causes him to panic and run to Jesus? Why? Second, what is wrong with having money and being rich? Now, just hang on. We're going to drill down just a little bit. Let's begin with the first question. What's causing this remarkable man to run to Jesus? It was very uncharacteristic for a wealthy ruler to be seen in public running. They were to be people of great dignity. It was expected of them they would be in control. They had no one to fear. They were in charge. They had power. They had wealth. They could purchase what they wanted. They could rule and make life miserable or very pleasant. And so it's almost like the whole crowd is mesmerized and stops and sees this young ruler driven by some panicky feeling. He runs to Jesus. Not only that, but he drops to his knees in an act of humility. And he says, good teacher. Now there's the big clue. Good teacher. He didn't call him Lord. This wasn't like the blind beggar who said, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. He calls him a teacher. And he uses the adjective good. And Jesus turns to him and he says, why? Why are you calling me good? You must know that the rabbinical community will not use that word anywhere unless they are referring to God, for only God is good. Are you really saying to me that you're not quite sure who I am? And that I might be somewhere close to deity? 
But then you call me a teacher. You don't use the word Lord. You don't use the word Savior. Teacher. Someone with maybe learning, wisdom, some integrity, good ideas, but not much more than that. Now, if you had called me Savior, you would have had to admit that you needed to be rescued. If you had called me Lord, you would have been admitting that I'm in charge. You've given me the steering wheel of your life. You're letting me decide what direction you're going in. You are an obedient servant, a follower of Christ. You're not asking me to follow you. You've decided to follow me. There's something else that gives us a clue about what's going on, and it's the word he used. He used the word inheritance. Now, for a rich man to begin to talk about an inheritance suggests to us that he knows he's not going to be able to take it all with him. I have preached a fair number of sermons and funerals in my life. I have never been in a funeral procession where the hearse had a U-Haul behind it. (laughs) You cannot take it with you. But that's not the point I don't think he's making. I think what he's saying is there is something more. He uses the word eternal life. He is saying there's something more than what I am seeing and feeling and owning in this life. There's an eternity. And I would like to put myself in line as an heir. I want to be part of that. I want to have a place in eternity. I want eternity life. But I don't have it. And I don't see that all my possessions and all my power and all my authority is doing anything for that. Let me give you a quick sidebar. And this is not in my notes, so the video team don't panic. Um, There's a huge difference between happiness and joy. Huge difference. This young man could purchase happiness. The currency of happiness is what is going on to you. What you are experiencing, what you are purchasing, what you have, that's the currency of happiness. But the currency of joy is what's happening in you. That's quite different. The most poverty-stricken person can be full of joy because they have a clear conscience. They are at peace with themselves and with God. I've had the devastating experience of hearing the doctor say to my wife, you have cancer. And she battled it for five years. And I remember that awful Wednesday when I took her to the doctor. She was now in a wheelchair and I was carrying the food bag on my shoulder. It was attached to her. The doctor looked at her and he said, Barbara, We have entered a new phase. The cancer has won. And as you leave the office today, 
I'll have the staff call hospice. And he turned to me and he said, this is going to be very quick. It was the end of a five-year journey. I remember so well the days when we'd be standing in the kitchen and for no apparent reason, she turned to me and throw her arms around and sob and say, I'm so sorry. I said, honey, it's nothing you did. But it wasn't until I stood at that casket and I remembered that though we sorrow, we sorrow not as those who have no hope. And the joy of the Lord is our strength in the deepest and darkest hour of life. What was happening to me had taken all the happiness away. But there was a deep joy. I think this young man had his fill of happiness. And still there's this void. This dashboard alarm is going on and on and on. And he says, there's something wrong. I've got to have an answer. The word inheritance also is a clue to something else. He realized you can't earn this. This is something bestowed upon you by the good favor of someone else who cares for you, who loved you, who wants to be generous to you. He says, I want to have that inheritance of eternal life. And all the power of this world and all the wealth of this world can't get it for me. I need to be in line for the inheritance that God is giving to his son. And Jesus said, if you follow me, I will make you an heir, a joint heir with me. He says, I, I'm not in the succession of line. How do I get there? And he falls at the feet of Jesus. Let me shift the focus for a moment from him to Christ. He's asked, how can I qualify for this? There's a sense of panic. But it says, Jesus looked at him, not with disdain, not with disappointment, not even with anger. He looked at him and he loved him. I don't know about you, but that stops me dead in my tracks. This man is not a Christ follower. His life has been absorbed all about himself. He thinks he's pretty good. He's told the Lord he's not a murderer, he's been moral, he's not immoral in his activities, he hasn't stolen, he hasn't defrauded anybody. He said, I've done all this from my youth. I've not even been dishonest. And Jesus loved him. Even though Jesus knew him better than he knew himself. Jesus knew that if he was grandstanding in front of this crowd trying to make a big show of it all, it was all phony. Jesus would have known it. Jesus knew what his problem was, but he was not going to treat a symptom. He was going to cut right down to the core. 
A lot of people come to Jesus and say, will you take care of my symptoms? Would you please turn the engine light off? I don't want to go to the mechanic. I just don't want this thing pestering me anymore. This thing called conscience. This thing that the Holy Spirit does when he whispers and says, you need to get right with God. There's more to life than this. There's an eternity. Jesus knew all of that and he loved him. I don't care where you are in the procession today. Jesus loves you. He's not looking at you anxious to find some excuse to punish you. Jesus is looking for an excuse to bless you. He loves you. And there's nothing that you and I can do to cause him to make us love us more. And the fact is, you can't do anything to keep him from loving you. He loved you so much that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He loved this man. The man's not sure who Jesus really is, teacher, Savior, or Lord. C.S. Lewis put it very succinctly when he said, Jesus is either the world's greatest liar or the world's biggest lunatic or he's a Lord. He cannot be all three. He is not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He wants to be Lord. He will not deal with your symptoms if you come to him. He'll cut to the core of the problem. This man had been tapped on the shoulder by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will tell us what's right and what's wrong. He will give us the capacity to judge between the two. And there are those gray areas... We all know there are the, they are there. The Apostle Paul had one. He said, I buy the best cuts of meat out the back door of the pagan temple. People have brought the best of the meat in and offered it to an idol. And they sell it out the back to support the temple. And it's the cheapest meat in town. And it's the best flays you can buy. People sat at the table and they said, where'd you get this meat? Paul said, uh, well, <laughs> you should go down to the local uh, pagan temple. You can buy it out the back door. It's, a, it's the best, best price in town. You do what? You buy meat at the pagan temple? Don't you think that's wrong because you shouldn't be doing that because you're you're, you're kind of in a second-hand way financing the pagans. And the Apostle Paul says this, 
I know that eating meat is not in itself wrong. But if it's causing my brother or sister to stumble because they came to Christ from paganism and they know all about this system, I will put meat away and I won't eat it and I won't buy any more of it out there. It's not right or it's wrong, but I judge that if it's causing my brother to stumble, I will set it aside. So the Holy Spirit comes and he taps us on the shoulder and he helps us to understand what's right, what's wrong. And judge between the two. Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you a helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know, we, we get an awful lot of the clues for our morality, unfortunately, from the world and not the Word. If you try to decide what's right and wrong by the direction the crowd is going in or by the boat of the crowd, you will find yourself on the wrong path. The road that Jesus asks us to take is not the road that the masses take. He said it's a different road. I put you in line for the inheritance. The road is quite narrow. And I send the Holy Spirit to help you to understand what's right and what's wrong. So let me go to the second question. Why did Jesus put his finger on this man's wealth? What is wrong with being rich or having money? Let me answer that. Nothing. Unless your wealth owns you instead of you owning it. It's not important to, it, it's important to not miss what Christ was telling this young man. He was not saying that his followers must not have assets. They must live in poverty. They must go and take some oath of poverty. They must give to the poor. They must be charitable. And if they do that, they will purchase great wealth in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He is speaking specifically to the problem of this man. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that wealth is sinful or wrong. What the scripture says is the love of money is the root of all evil. This man was in love with his money. There were many biblical giants who were very, very wealthy. Let me name a couple. Abraham, David, Solomon, Job. Oh, you say, Job, give me a break. God stripped him of everything he had. Oh, did you read the end of the book? Did you get beyond that? God restored to Job all his wealth and made him more wealthy than he had ever been in his life. And it was God's doing. If wealth is evil, explain that. Then there's Jairus in the New Testament. Very similar to this man, only he wasn't young. But he was rich and he was a ruler. 
and he has a daughter who's near death, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, come, heal my daughter. She's at the point of death. Jesus never asked Jairus to give up his wealth. He didn't say to him, if you'll sell out, give your wealth, I might consider healing your daughter. No. He went and healed the daughter. Unfortunately, in the church community, there's been some very, very dangerous teaching that has erupted from this very passage. And people have said that if you give, you will get. Because you can't outgive God, and God will pour back, shaken down, running together, you know, running over, and you can't outgive God. So give! Give more so you can get more. There's something wrong with that. What is the motive of giving if it's in order to get? How are you better off than this man? As a very dangerous teaching. And the worst thing about it is it denies the very issue that Jesus was talking about, he wasn't talking about money, he was talking about lordship. Who is the Lord of your life? Who is your God? Who is making the call? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, there is nothing wrong with having money unless it becomes your God. It becomes the pursuit of everything in your life. Something was out of order in this man's life. His spiritual dashboard was lit up. And he did not know what was wrong. And he came to Jesus and Jesus put his finger on it. And he touched a very sore spot because the man was devastated. He had great possessions. Now, in order to understand what the disciples were struggling with, they they watched this and they said... If he can't be saved. Jesus turns to them and he says. You see this young man. He's in a real struggle. He is having a hard time. Separating himself from his wealth. It is easier for a camel. To go through the eye of a needle. Than it is for him. To get into the kingdom of God. And it's true of everybody who has riches. Now, riches in that culture was a sign of God's blessing. They believed that if you were rich, you were blessed of God. If you were poor, you were out of favor with God. And so they disdained the poor, the very people that Jesus invited around him. There's a very interesting picture of Jesus in in the gospel. He's in the temple courts. 
And, and there's a, a money bucket there where, where people would come and put their, their money. And it was metal so that the coins would tink, chink, chink as they went in. And, and if somebody went in there and stuffed something down, you could hear the, the chink. And some of the wealthy would bring a bag and they just pour it in and ching, 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 ching. People say, wow, that's quite an offering. Ooh, God must really have blessed him, her. And then this widow comes in. She reaches in her purse and she takes out two little pennies and they hardly make a noise as they go in. Just tinkle, tinkle. And Jesus stands there and he looks at the disciples and he said, Do you see that widow? She just put two mites in. She gave more than all the others combined. Because the way I measure the size of a gift is not the amount of the offering, but it's what's left behind. Wow. On that standard, most of us have been pretty chintzy, haven't we? What does a wealthy person look like in the eyes of Jesus if he's a Christ follower? He's free. Jesus said, I am come to set you free. I'm not here to put you in bondage. You have gotten into bondage to your money. Your bank account is dictating your lifestyle. Your bank account is dictating how much you give to God. That's not the way it is. I have come to set you free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. There's a church not far from where I used to live. It's called Mariners. Some of you probably know about it. And, and they, they, they realized they had a huge debt. It was about $75 million. And they'd been growing and growing and growing, building a larger and larger campus. And it was, it's a magnificent place, huge Thousands and thousands and thousands of people who come to it. About three or four years ago, the pastor said, we've got to deal with this debt. And so each year for a number of years, they've had a major capital campaign just to reduce the debt. And uh, earlier this year, they had it down to about $27 million. It's a long ways. And uh, he said, "Let's, let's wipe it out. So uh, six weeks ago, thereabouts, maybe five, gentleman walked into the uh, the church office. It's the end of the campaign. He asked to see the business manager, and uh, he didn't tell him why. And he sat down and he said, uh, "How's the uh, capital campaign going?" Business manager said, "Well, it, you know, it, it's it's come along pretty good. Uh, we." We've received $10 million. The man said, $10 million, huh? I said, yeah. So that leaves our debt at uh, $17 million? He said, yes, sir. He reached in his pocket, took out his checkbook, wrote a check, dollar sign, one, seven, comma, Zero, 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 comma, zero, zero, zero. Seventeen million dollars. Tears it out of the book. 
hands it to him. He says, we're out of debt. Praise the Lord. That next Sunday, uh, my younger son was in the service, and he said when people walked in, they got a facsimile of the, the mortgage note. And he said, <laughs> you know, everybody said, wow, <laughs> this, this has got to be the highest pressure deal of the all. They're, they're, they're giving us all a picture of the mortgage note, and uh, they probably want us to write on it how much we're going to give. And I've already given. Why are they doing this? pastor got up and he said now this morning he said you received something very unusual when you got the bulletin you got a copy of our mortgage note what I'd like you to do is go to the top of it and rip it in half just pull it down and then start shredding it throw the paper on the floor he said I just want this whole sanctuary to be littered with the remains of our debt because it's all paid I like this story for several reasons. It's the picture of a person who was free, free to give. It's a picture of a person who gave anonymously. We don't know his name. Church staff probably does, but I don't have any idea who he is. He could be like maybe any of you sitting here. But he got tapped on the shoulder. And his God was not going to be in his pocketbook. His God was going to be the eternal God. The Apostle Paul put it so succinctly in chapter 2 in closing. And we put it up here on the board. This is what he said. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not even from yourselves. You haven't mustered it up yourself. It was a gift of God to you, not by works, so that no one can boast. We cannot sit here and look across the aisle and say, I'm better than you are. God loves me more because I have more. Neither can we sit there and say, God loves me more because I gave more. It's all about the Lordship of Jesus. It's not about stuff. Someone said it very, very succinctly when he said, He is no fool, or she is no fool, who gives up what they cannot keep in order to get what they cannot lose. Let's pray. You are a jealous God. You have told us very plainly, You will have no other gods before me. I am either Lord of all or I am not Lord at all. And I want to ask you in the sobriety and solemnness of this moment, has your check light been flashing? Is there something that God wants to put his finger on in your life? Covetousness is not limited to money. It can be anything that steps between you and God. A habit, a lifestyle, pursuit of fame, pride, all kinds of things. If the 
check engine lights flashing on your spiritual life. Take a moment. Say, Lord, figuratively, I'm running to your feet and I'm bowing and I'm saying, what must I do to put myself in line of an eternal inheritance? Thank you, Lord, for looking at us in this moment with love, not with anger, but with love. Help us to respond in a loving way. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much, Wayne. What a, what a beautiful message and a wonderful reminder for us today. Would you stand with me? If you would like prayer after the service, we will have prayer partners up here in front of the stage. Please feel free to make your way up front to ask for prayer and receive prayer. I'd like to leave you with this this challenge this week. If there's any area of your life that maybe you've been holding back from allowing Christ to be Lord of, Would you give him access into that area this week? May you recognize the promptings of God and may you know that he is Lord of all. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.